You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. If you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 6. We've been working our way through this rich book, which has been the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Pray that it's been coming alive to you as it has been to me over the last couple of years. And we're in Hebrews chapter 6. This morning, I want to turn our attention to Jesus as our eternal high priest, specifically our high priest fixed in eternity. Not just high priest historically, but eternally set forevermore from everlasting to everlasting as our high priest. That word priest can most literally mean bridge builder. So the one who bridges the gap between the temporal, his created things, and eternity. It's Jesus, our eternal high priest. And I pray that your heart will be set on fire with a new level of faith and confidence and certainty and surety in the Lord as you look at him as the eternal high priest this morning in his word. Over Christmas, um, I was reminiscing with some of my siblings just about childhood and growing up and and one of my siblings uh, gave me the news, the scandalous news that both of my grandparents' homes, of which I grew up you know, running around, both of them had been torn down in our hometown, or my parents' hometown of Glenwood, Minnesota. So you know, unrelated to each other, you know, progress and development, um, these houses which had been fixed in my, my mind as you know, hallmarks of an amazing childhood, and amazing memories, so much nostalgia in my mind growing up, running around their properties, had been torn down. And two things happened. One, I felt really, really old. Like, my life is but a vapor. (laughs) It's like, these things that are meant to be like institutions, you know, your your grandparents' homes. This is the home my parents, my dad grew up in, and then the the home my my, my mom grew up in. Torn down. So scandalous in that sense. I mean, I just feel like, I'm not that old, am I? But I guess I am. But secondly, it felt almost like someone was trying to say those things like never even happened. Like they were there and then they're, they're gone. Did they even happen? Were, were those even like real things? There is this real, hopefully unnerving reality of the temporal nature of this life that is here and then it is gone. And so, therefore, our hope, our confidence, our certainty is not in any earthly institution, any earthly moment, any earthly memory, but it's actually most firmly grounded and most firmly planted in the person of Jesus Christ, the Eternal One, capital E, the one who is outside of time, who is actually the creator of time, not bound by time. He's not limited by time. He is the the creator of all things, the eternal one. And he's the one who's gonna capture our hearts this morning. So in Hebrews chapter six, we're gonna start reading in verse 13, but I'll just give you a little context. The writer of Hebrews had already pronounced Jesus as the high priest. And Peter calls Jesus the high priest, John calls um, Jesus the high priest, but the writer of Hebrews, more than any other writer, makes that the central point of this book. The revelation that Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is the great bridge builder between humanity and the divine. It's Jesus. 
But this, the writer of Hebrews had already introduced that theme, but he had to take a pause. Because he said this matter, this revelation of Jesus as high priest, it's meaty. He calls it meat. This is spiritual meat. It's the sustenance of the protein that builds up a strong person in Christ, in God. And so he takes a pause and he gives them a warning, like a sobering warning to not become spiritually dull, to not be, as the, that word can be translated, wistfully forgetful about the sufficiency of Jesus and allow your heart to stay tender before the Lord. He gives us that warning. That's where we were at last time I shared. And then he's gonna dive right back into that. So it was, a, it was an exhortation, that, that pause of warning was an exhortation to not become apathetic or slothful, but to have childlike, tender uh, affection for the Lord continually throughout all your days. And he's gonna use Abraham as an example of growing up in faith. Abraham was not perfect, but he grew up in faith, growing up into maturity in the Lord. And he's gonna use that as the example. So let's look at this, Hebrews chapter six, Verse 13, it says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham since there was no one greater to swear by. God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. So he says, here's the example. Here's the example of maturity. One who didn't remain spiritually dull, but one who, who grew up in, from faith to faith. It's Abraham. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. That waiting patiently is synonymous with maturity. And that means the opposite is, is also true. Immaturity is impatience. But Abraham, his life was, was marked by growing up into the Lord because he waited patient, patiently, confident in the Lord's certainty, confident in this hope the Lord had given him. This revelation that God can be trusted. So immaturity is impatience. So when you are getting bent out of shape with traffic or something so temporary, it's good for us to take a deep breath, zoom out and realize God's character, the things that are unmoving, the things that this life cannot steal away from us. You can think of it in terms of, even this weekend, thinking of my father hanging out with a two-year-old a two-year-old drops something on the ground and it can ruin their day, right? They're just crying and, and, or if they don't get something right in that moment, right? Because they're so impatient. That is the marker of immaturity. Maturity, and Abraham exemplifies this, is setting our eyes patiently on the confident uh, certainty of the Lord's character, that he can be trusted. So the Lord is a promise keeper, and he promises an oath that he's gonna keep his word to Abraham. Verse 16, it says, now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. Who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. God has not changed his mind. None of this of humanity, specifically the sending of Jesus, was an afterthought or a plan B or a, an audible in God's mind. This was, Ephesians tells us that this was all preordained. 
God predestined this before the creation of the world, that in this cosmos of free will love, that God would pursue a people that he created in love by manifesting himself in the person of his son. So God has not changed his mind. This is important for us to establish in our hearts. That there's no insecurity in God. There's no wavering in him. Let's keep reading that. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Someone needs to hear that this morning. It's impossible for God to lie. Regardless of what your circumstances tell you, what a friend told you, even what your spouse told you, even what a leader has told you. It's impossible for God to lie. He keeps his word. And here he gives, here he gives Abraham the double, the, like the, the double whammy, the double-edged sword of his certainty. He gives him a promise and he gives him the oath. It's a personal, it's a personal uh, revelation of that promise to Abraham's heart, that he is a God that can be trusted. This reminds me so much, and maybe I'll just turn there because it's just a few pages over to James chapter one. James chapter one, verse five, it says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not, he will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with a divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown, toss, blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. That's how James starts off his letter to these believers scattered across Asia. Their loyalty is divided. They question the character and the certainty of God. God cannot lie. He is unchanging. And he goes on to say in James chapter one that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. That is our God. That is our Lord, our promise keeper, the one who cannot lie. He is unchangeable. Can you say that word, unchangeable? He's unchangeable. He cannot lie. Therefore, we who have fled, this is still in verse 18, or sorry, yeah, verse 18. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he's just about to dive into the deep end of the meat of Jesus as our eternal high priest. This is all the, the segue back to that. He paused to give a warning. He allows Abraham to be the example of that warning in a positive way. And he's bringing us back to the ground the foundation, the, the anchor for our souls, which is this revelation of Jesus being the eternal one, the eternal high priest. 
He says, this is the strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. So if you ever feel fickle, if you feel unpredictable, if you feel like you're wavering oftentimes, immerse yourself. Actually, just dump yourself into the deep end. Jump, jump into the deep end of this revelation that Jesus is the eternal high priest, unchanging, fixed in eternity. Before the, be, he was there before the beginning. Scripture calls him the beginning and the end, meaning he's the author of the beginning. He says when it is finished, and he'll be there forevermore. He is the eternal high priest. So he had already introduced this idea that Jesus was the fulfillment of this dude named Melchizedek. And this is what he calls the meat. So this will allow this to be our diet. He's gonna get into Jesus is our Melchizedek. This Melchizedek, verse one, uh, chapter seven, verse one, we are gonna read a lot of scripture. We're gonna read all of chapter seven today in faith. We're gonna get there. <laughs> Hebrews chapter seven, it says, this Melchizedek was, was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God most high. So he was both a priest and a king. We, we think of Jesus as king and we talk and we sing a lot about Jesus being king because he will be seen as king. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is king, that he is Lord. All of creation will see that revelation. Melchizedek carries a role as both a king of this city, which became eventually Jerusalem, the, the city of Salem, but he was also a priest. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. So they have this encounter in Genesis chapter 14 of Abraham recognizing a revelation of God in Melchizedek. God was speaking to Abraham. So here was this non-Jewish leader, ruler, king and priest that reveals himself to Abraham and Abraham is humble enough to recognize that. I think this is significant. This is after Abraham had just had a sizable victory. And he's humble enough to recognize what stands before him. How many of us, after a great victory, a great sale of a, in, in your business, or you know, your, things are going well in your home with your kids, things are going well for you, you're flying high. How many of us in those places have a great posture to receive some great revelation from the Lord? I would say the opposite is oftentimes true. It's oftentimes in those moments of desperation of where we recognize our brokenness and our depravity. That's when we're usually quite open. But Abraham here has such faith, has such humility, that even when he's flying high after a victory, he recognizes Melchizedek as something more than just a neighboring leader. No, he's actually one who is an authority over Abraham. I mean, that's Holy Spirit in Abraham's life, for sure. Verse two, then Abraham took a tenth of all that he had captured in battle and he gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice. The king of Salem means king of peace. So his name that he carried was this king of justice or some translated king of righteousness. The place of which he ruled over was this place called the king, I mean, the place that, that represents peace, he was the king of righteousness ruling over the, the dominion of peace. 
In your search for peace, I'll tell you, you'll never find peace without first encountering righteousness. There's an order that that's important. We encounter Jesus as king of righteousness, which leads us to the revelation that he is the king of peace. And you can't flip that order. There's a, there's a mad search right now amongst our generation to find peace. But you'll never find it without first encountering Jesus as the king of righteousness. He alone will make you right, and you can come before the God of all peace in good standing and right standing only because of Jesus as our high priest, as our priest that makes us righteous in the sight of God. Verse three, there is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no no beginning or end. He remains a priest forever, resembling the son of God. I would encourage you to even underline that, that that sentence, that last sentence of verse three. Because that should change the way we read scripture. What we, what we have before us is not just a historical document, although it is, and it's preserved with crazy accuracy historically in terms of its historical authority. But it's more than that. Melchizedek resembled the son of God. Jesus was trying to speak to us in this account of Melchizedek reveal himself to us. Abraham recognized that. Hopefully this changes the way you read scripture. When you're, you're starting in the garden and you, you hear this proclamation that the seed of Eve will, will crush the serpent's head, rather than skipping on over it, your heart will burn and come alive to, to, to understand that that's Jesus. This is, that, that's, that's who God is pointing us towards. And that's the thread you begin to see story after story after story. As you get to the story of Noah and the flood and we see this this covenant of covenant promised to Noah that God would never destroy the earth again with a flood. And he gives him this, this, this rainbow as a covenant. May we never just read that as a nice fanciful Sunday school story but as a revelation of God's covenant-keeping promise that he is a sure, confident God that we can trust in. Amen? Amen. Pray that you never read scripture the same. Jesus is our priest forever, the son of God. Verse four, consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are, all descendants, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. So the writer of Hebrews is expounding on something of which has not happened yet in Genesis 14. He's, he's saying, fast forward, you know, you, you know about the Levitical system of of priestly sustenance. The priest would take a tithe from the, the house of Israel. That would sustain the work in the temple and the, the, sustain the lives and the families of the Levites. He's saying this was not that. This was recognition in Abraham of something greater than him, greater than some system to maintain worship on the earth. This was something otherworldly, this revelation of Melchizedek to Abraham. There was something that Abraham realized that Melchizedek superseded, so much so that he received this blessing from him. You remember, Abraham had already received a blessing from God. 
in Genesis chapter 12. He had already said he would be famous, that his, his descendants would bless the earth in Genesis chapter 12. So in some senses, Abraham didn't need another blessing. He recognized that this blessing from Melchizedek superseded even that blessing in Genesis chapter 12 because it would supersede even what God does on the earth. It would reach up into the heavenlies because here was this king from another world, this eternal king and priest, Melchizedek. Oh, this is good. I hope you're enjoying this. This is the meat. I'm trying to cut up the meat before we serve it, but I pray that it's food for your soul. Verse seven, and without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who's blessed. So the fact that Abraham recognized this encounter for what it was is, is amazing. Coming off of victory, already receiving the pronouncement from God that he would be the father of nations. He would be Father Abraham that we sing about. He already received all that, and yet he was still open to a revelation. So I pray that you, those revelations of, of God to your heart only stoke more hunger in your heart. From glory to glory. To, to those that the Lord gives of himself, he gives even more. To those that have a humble and contrite heart to receive more. There's always more in God available. Verse eight, the priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. So even the, the priestly system that would come eventually through Abraham was subservient to this revelation of God, um, God being the eternal high priest in Melchizedek. Verse 11, so if the priesthood of, a Levi, of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? Why is that? This priestly order of, of humanity only put off the, the, the judgment and wrath of God for, for, an, for one year. Every calendar year, they'd have to come around, they would have to do these sacrificial duties again. And so God was pointing Abraham to a day when that priestly system would be superseded because of this priest and king who was eternal and was the perfect sacrifice. I just love it how God's word is so woven together. And if, in verse 12, and if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. You can think of that word changed, uh, you know, alluding to this like treaty being edited, this treaty being uh, amended. That's what God has done. He had this agreement of uh, allowing humanity to, to continue to even exist as fallen, sinful, rebellion humanity. This was his way, the Levitical priest, priestly system. But God amended that by the, by the revealing of Jesus as our high priest. For the pre, verse 13, for the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is our Lord came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. So, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. He's the son of David. So how is Jesus also a priest? He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. 
He's a priest because he comes from the order of Melchizedek. He comes from this other seed, this eternal seed, this seed that had no beginning or end. That was Melchizedek. He didn't have a father or mother that, that, the, that Genesis 14 talks about. Verse 15, this change, this change to the agreement, this change to the, the system has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. He's, get, he's getting there. Jesus, verse 16, Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews had already said that. Now he's expounding on it. That there is this king who will come, this king, this son of David from the tribe of Judah, but in the order of Melchizedek, who will come, who will supersede that system of access to God. Remember what priest means. Priest means a bridge builder. God building the bridge for us to come into the presence of the divine, to come into the terrifying, scary place of the presence of a holy God. Jesus is that eternal bridge builder, the eternal high priest. Verse 18, yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. It's important for us to remember that about regarding the law in the Old Testament. And Paul expounds on that at length in, in the book of Romans, that the law doesn't make us perfect. Even the, the whole Levitical system didn't appease God to the level that, that Jesus' sacrifices appeased God. The, the Levitical system and the system of the law simply was God's mercy to put off his judgment but eventually we would have to come to grips with the realities of the consequences of our own sin. That would never be satisfied in the system of the law or the vehicle system. That could only be satisfied in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 20, this new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow, you are a priest forever. He's a priest forever. Verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. And specifically, the nature about, specifically Jesus' eternal nature is what sears that confidently in our heart. And don't try to establish your confidence in anything else. Establish it in your heart to the, to the, to, uh, in, the, in the reality that Jesus is eternal. He stands as priest forever. Verse 23, there are many priests under the old system for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. It lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever, once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Even now, right now, Jesus is there interceding 
at the right hand of the Father. He is the eternal high priest. He he did what he came to accomplish 2,000 years ago, and now he's lived in this role as high priest, and he'll be there for all of eternity as our advocate, as our high priest. First John chapter two expounds on this as well, you know, as John is talking about walking in the light, living in light in community and in light, the light of God before people. Don't be duplicitous, don't be hypocritical. Live before God, open, authentic before the Lord. He says, if you do sin, don't, don't use grace as a, as a license sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate. His name is Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. You have one there. If you confess to him. First Timothy says that as well about Jesus, that he is the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus Christ. That's his role as our advocate, even to this day, interceding at the right hand of the Father. So verse 26. He is the kind of high priest we need. He's the kind of high priest I need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He's been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. This is our Jesus, our eternal high priest. He's set apart from anyone, from anything. Hopefully this eternal, this revelation of Jesus, the eternal high priest, unleashes worship and praise in your heart to the Lord. He's unlike anything. I can't help but worship when I dwell on the reality of Jesus as eternal. It's just impossible for me not to meditate on the fact that he, he always has been and always will be, and for me not to begin to worship the Lord. He is the highest place of honor in heaven. Worship is such a natural expression of hearts in love with Jesus. Me and my son right now, we're planning on going to um, the Grand Canyon to mark his 13th year this spring. And you go to a place like that, and can you imagine like seeing amazing scenery of any sort and never saying a word about it, never opening up your mouth? I mean, if you're with people, even if you're by yourself, you're gonna be like, this is amazing. You know, you, there's words that erupt from your mouth. There's, there's an expression of awe and wonder that comes bubbling up out of you when you behold something amazing, when you behold something beautiful. And I've never been to the Grand Canyon, so I'm excited to go there on this adventure with him. And I know what's gonna be coming up out of my mouth. It's gonna be awe and amazement at the sight of what my eyes are setting eyes on. And so when God gives, a, gives us a revelation that he is the eternal high priest, what erupts in our hearts, it has to be worship. And if it's not, may we get on our knees and say, God, reveal this to my heart. Bring me lower, Lord, so I may see you higher. Bring me lower, Lord. This is what we need. He is the kind of high priest that we need. That's what verse 26 said. He is that kind of high priest that we need. Verse 27. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. 
But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been, the, has made, been made, the high, made the perfect high priest forever. I butchered that. God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Amen. Forever, for all of eternity. I'm gonna ask God to come forward to the keys. Jesus is our eternal high priest. And may this be the grounding for our very existence on this earth. The grounding for our confidence, the grounding of our hope. Our hope cannot rest in anything else. Other things will disappoint you. Other things will let you down. As we read in the book of James, other things, there's changing and there's shadows. The Lord, we can have confidence in him because he is before all things and beyond all things because he is eternal. And this is where we set our eyes. I created this, this uh, illustration. I just want to point our eyes to it to close. You can put that up there. Think of our existence before Christ as these two land masses. We live our lives in this temporal, which is savage, really. It's just a, us trying to eke our existence on this planet. And it is stressful. It is worrisome. It is fearful. It is... It weighs on us, the anxieties, the burdens of it. And then there's God. There's this huge chasm between us and God, between us and the divine, between us and a holy God. But that's where Jesus comes, as the bridge builder. He is the eternal step down into the temporal, into the very ones he created. Jesus specifically as our high priest. Allowing himself to actually be associated with sinners, although never being tainted by it. Humbling himself to be seen amongst us. Humbling himself to live life amongst us for 33 years. Submitting and subjecting himself to ridicule and mockery. And ultimately, submitting himself to the, the ultimate sacrifice of his life to be made as a payment for our sins. And when we see Jesus in that light as the sole answer for our sin and our own rebellion, our lawlessness, we begin to step out from the temporal and onto this bridge of which he's created and our eyes become fixed on eternity. That now becomes our destiny. This is our promised land. This is our inheritance, it's this eternity beyond the temporal, this temporal grind that wears away at us. Our eyes now, our destiny, our inheritance is now fixed on something eternal. That's what our hope is in. That's what our confidence is in. That's why you can wake up and have this unwavering confidence to seize the day and make the most of it for the glory of God. It's because of our eternal hope in Jesus Christ as our eternal high priest, who still is to this day the bridge builder. 
And what that does is it's not just an escape from the temporal. It actually transforms things in our rearview mirror. And you can go to that last slide. Because Jesus isn't our bridge builder as just an escape. It is the only sure anchor and foundation for our hope and our confidence. It is that. That's Jesus as our high priest. But something does then change in our rear view. There is an urgency in this temporal world. No longer is our urgency tied to how am I going to pay my bills or how am I going to eat this week or what do I do if people don't like me? It's not going to be that anymore. Now all of a sudden it's going to be this urgency for souls, for the lost, to pour our lives out for others. It's going to be this urgency to live our lives in the sight of God. It's going to be this urgency to make the most of every single day. It flips on head the temporal and does stir up an urgency in our hearts. And as, as the enemy rears his face, as the world comes against us, we are unwavering, we are sure, we are confident because our, because our hope is fixed in eternity. From beginning to end, it's fixed in eternity. That's my prayer for each one of us this morning. If you'd all stand here, if you were to respond to the Lord. Oh Lord, give us a revelation of you as the eternal high priest. God, may it wreck us. May it invade our hearts. God, may it never be a simply a doctrinal creed, creedal statement. May it be a revelation in our hearts. God, bring us lower like Abraham, who while he was flying high and winning the victories, he could see a higher revelation than himself. He could see something, he could recognize something greater than himself. He allowed his heart to become undone. Oh God, undo us this morning. Undo us with your majesty. You should begin to respond to the Lord, the eternal high priest, even presently right now, interceding on your behalf, the right hand of the Father. Jesus knew this was his eternal role. That's why he was, he was giddy to, to move on. He was excited to send the Holy Spirit because he knew his role as eternal high priest was being fulfilled in that hour. And he's, he is our advocate. He is our eternal high priest, our eternal bridge builder. God, this morning, would you wash away all uncertainty, may it be washed away in your presence. Those who have been wavering in doubt, unbelief, and unconfidence or lack of confidence, God, would you immerse them in this revelation of you as eternal, you as everlasting, you as unchanging, fixed even before all of eternity forever God may it penetrate our hearts 
going to invite the prayer teams to come forward. If you're here this morning and you need to get your life right with the Lord, I encourage you to do so. God's mercy is here. His grace is here. He's the only answer for your life. He's the only the only thing that will ever satisfy. He's the only thing that can ever appease your conscience. I've tried most everything. I've searched the world over. And I find nothing else can appease my, my guilty conscience than placing my faith in Jesus alone is the only sufficient answer. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.